Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the catechism is not just a random collection of theological truths that a couple of theologians came up with as they sat in their ivory tower musing about abstract things. No, the catechism tells a story. The catechism uh, outlines the way of salvation. It begins in the city of destruction. It begins with our problem, our sin, and our misery, and that we have no way of getting out of it. Then it brings us to the cross. It brings us to the Christ. It shows us the way out of sin and misery. And then, after having done that, it brings us to how we live in thankfulness for the salvation that we have by grace in Christ Jesus as we await the fullness of the work of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when, when we read the catechism and we're looking at individual Lord's Days, it's sometimes tempting to lose sight of the forest because we're staring at some individual trees. And today we're dealing with three Lord's Days. We're backing up a little bit and taking a bit of a bigger picture. And the catechism incites us to do that because it says in Lord's Day 23, question answer 59, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? Well, what is all this? And this all this refers to a whole stack of Lord's Days that we've just been through. It refers to all the Lord's Days between Lord's Day 7 and Lord's Day 22. What does it help you now that you believe all this? What is this all this? Well, go back to Lord's Day 7. That's on page 523. And in Lord's Day 7, the church was asking how and who can be saved and how can men be saved. We've established that all men are lost and dead in sin. We've established that there is a savior, there's a way out of sin. And in Lord's Day 7, the question is this, well, okay, seeing that there's a way out of sin, that means everything's okay now for everyone, right? And, and the answer is no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. And so in Lord's Day 7, the Catechism confesses the scriptural truth that the world, that the population of the planet is divided into two groups, those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ, those who know life and those who are in death, those who are in the kingdom of heaven and those who remain in the kingdom of hell. And the difference between those two groups is that those who are in Christ are grafted into him by a true faith. That makes all the difference. And so the Catechism rightly asks, well, what is this faith? And we see in Lossi 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way to 22, a description of the content of faith. What is faith? Well, faith is believing God's word. It's, it's believing that when God says something, it's true. Faith is the opposite of what Adam and Eve did when they listened to the serpent. He said, did God really say? And they said, well, that's a good question. I'm not sure God can be believed. Let's strike out on our own and figure out our own way. And so faith is the opposite 
of what happened in the fall. Faith is clinging to what God says, even if everything that's happening in our life seems to be saying the opposite. We hold on to God's Word. And the 12 articles of the Christian faith that we recite or sing every Sunday, the credo, the creed, is a beautiful and concise and elegant summary of the entire teaching of Scripture. But if you look at the 12 articles, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, you'll see that we're not in the first place confessing what we believe, but we're confessing who we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. We believe in God the Spirit. The Creed describes in a beautiful summary the teaching of Scripture about who God is and what He has done. And when we receive the revelation of God about who He is and what He has done, about the person and the work of the triune God, then we are having faith. We are believing in His Word. Now, we've gone through many, many weeks of the Creed, Lord's Day 7 right through to Lord's Day 22. Why so many weeks that the church has spent on, on working through each article of the Creed? Why is it so important? Why do we take a, a major chunk of our year to do that? Well, because it is by true faith that we are grafted into Christ, and, and faith is something. It's not just a vague emotion. It is not a faint psychological feeling. It is not a warm sensation. But faith is something that can be grasped, that can be understood, that can be studied, that can be delivered once for all to the saints, that can be passed on. The content of faith can be passed on from generation to generation of believers. True faith, then, is not some warm feeling or sensation, some emotion in the first place, although it certainly incites emotions and warm feelings, but true faith in the first place is to hear the Word of God, to acknowledge the Word of God, to believe the Word of God, to confess that God's Word is true when God reveals who He is. And when God reveals what He has done, then true faith says, yes, that's who God is. Yes, that's what God has done. And if true faith will connect us to Christ, it must be true faith. We've got to get the details right. A few days ago, last week, the Crew Dragon, the SpaceX crew module, splashed down in the ocean just off the coast of Florida. They came back from the International Space Station, and to reach the space station in the first place, that Crew Dragon module had to be built exactly according to specifications. The engineers and the people that were building it couldn't just eyeball it and couldn't just, couldn't just say, well, she'll be right, mate, that's, that's fine, we'll just do this or cut that corner. They had to follow every specification exactly, or people would die, things wouldn't work. 
and to go up and to leave the atmosphere or to go high up into um, to the International Space Station, they had to have exactly the right amount of fuel and the right amount of thrust in the right vectors, and everything had to be perfectly and carefully calculated. Sloppy design, sloppy execution, and they might never leave the surface of the planet, or they might be hurled into outer space, ever, ever deeper space, miss their objective, and die. Everything has to be just right to get to their goal, which is to connect to the International Space Station. And so theologically, so theologically, everything has to be exactly right for us to connect with Christ. We can't just do it any which way. It has to be God's way. Now, we don't all have to be theologians, just like the crew, the astronauts and the crew dragon don't have to be all physicists or engineers, but we need to know the drill. We need to know enough so that we can connect safely and securely. They cannot expect to connect with the International Space Station if they ignore the instructions and ignore the drills, and we cannot expect to connect with Christ if we refuse to believe his word, if we deny partially or completely who he is and what he has done. Now, faith is not always easy. You think of Romans chapter 4. We read Romans chapter 4 earlier in the service. You think of Abraham, the father of believers. God revealed to him the person and the work of Christ the promises of the gospel in Christ, but it was revealed in vague Old Testament terms, shadows and types. And Abraham had to believe God's revelation, God's promises in Christ, what God said about who he was and what he was doing and what he would do. And when Abraham heard God's revelation, and then he looked around at his life. It didn't always seem to line up. He had a lot of questions. And yet, he nevertheless believed. He held on to God's promises. Even when the entire world and everything was saying, I really, really don't think that's going to happen. He held on to God's promises, and God said, Abraham, you are righteous, not because of what you're doing, but because you trust me. You trust in Christ, and you are acceptable to me in Christ. And so the father of all believers was justified by faith. He was declared righteous by Faith. Now, we have so much more to go by. We live in the New Testament. We live after the conception and the birth, the life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. We live in the time when He is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. We have so many more things in the creed to say, to confess, to believe, to love, to delight in than Abraham had. We have so much more reason 
to hold on to God's promises, for we have seen them fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church has confessed from Scripture in Lord's Day 7 right through to Lord's Day 22 the glorious truths of the gospel, who God is, what he has done. And we believe these truths. We love these truths. We confess them. This is not just a theological exercise. These are glorious and powerful truths that connect us with Christ. The faith itself doesn't make us righteous. Christ makes us righteous, but faith is what God the Holy Spirit gives to us as a gift to unite us with Christ who is our righteousness, to connect us to him, to graft us into him. If you have your psalm book open, look there at Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60. Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60. This is how we begin the service with confession. The question is how? Okay, you're righteous in Christ. You have faith and that connects you to Christ, your righteousness. But, but how does that work? How are you righteous? Well, here's the explanation. My conscience accuses me. I have no merit. I deserve only judgment. Faith recognizes the truth, the terrifying truth, about who we are outside of Christ, in ourselves. Faith recognizes, acknowledges, accepts, embraces the truth that apart from Christ, we are lost in our sins. We are dead in our sins. We are children of wrath. And that is an integral part of the gospel. That is an integral part of Christian worship because if we don't get that right we won't move on to the next step. If we have not concluded that we have no resources ourselves, that we have no way of uh, dealing with our situation and getting out of it, if we still think there's something we can do, we will never seek the Lord Jesus as he is to be sought. And so in the first part of question and answer 60, we see that blessing spoken of by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. There is acknowledgement There is in the acknowledgement of our sin much blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Is that you? Does your conscience accuse you that you have grievously sinned? that you have never kept any of God's commandments, that in your flesh, in your old nature, there is still that desire for every type of evil. Is that something that I recognize in myself? If it is something that I recognize in myself, then there is blessing. Blessing because then I hunger for and thirst for a righteousness which is alien, which is not mine, but which is given to me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How? How will they be satisfied? Well, they will be satisfied with the overwhelming, overflowing, infinitely abounding, perfect righteousness of Christ. 
Do you feel unworthy? And the Christian says, yes, in myself, I feel unworthy. But in Christ, I am worthy. In Christ, I am loved. Brother, sister, Father loves you with the same intense, infinite, unbreakable, unfailing love with which he loves the Son. You are as acceptable and lovable to the Father as his own beloved Son. You see those words are in question 60. We've got to read them and reread them. These are a glorious summary of the gospel that he imputes to us, not our sin. That's not what he puts in our account. He imputes to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Look at those words which confess the teaching of Holy Scripture. Look at them. What has God given us? What has God given you? What has God put on your account? The perfect satisfaction. That means the payment for all sin. It's totally paid for. There's nothing owing. Nothing. You owe God nothing. There's no outstanding sin. There's no debt that you have before God. There's no sin that you have to kind of make up for. There's perfect satisfaction. And you have the perfect righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees a man, he sees a woman, he sees a child who has fully and perfectly always kept the law. And you see the last paragraph there of question and answer 60. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. That's how God looks at, it, at you, child of God. As if you have never, ever sinned in your life. As if you had accomplished all the obedience which Christ rendered for you. In other words, the church confesses in the, what the scripture teaches. That when God looks upon us in Christ, he sees Christ. He looks at you, believer. He sees his only begotten, beloved son. And he loves you. He loves you with an eternal love. And he wants you to be in eternal fellowship with him. There is nothing that he sees in you that he finds abhorrent. There is nothing to make him wish to push you away from him. But there is only deep, abiding, eternal love. That is the blessing of true righteousness in Christ. And that is your righteousness. If only you believe. If only you accept this gift with a believing heart. That's all we need to do. It's so simple. You know, people sometimes come to the church and they look around and say, well, these people are all dressed up and, and they, on, on the whole, they seem to live pretty stable lives with stable families and they, you know, don't swear and curse. And I, in order to become a Christian, I need to imitate them. I need to be like them. And I've often had it in the mission field where people have said to me, Pastor, I, I want to become a Christian, but first, let me clean up my life first. And be like the Christians, and then I can come to the Lord Jesus. No, that's not the way it works. 
All we need to do is believe. At Lord's Day 23 then teaches us to to cling to God's promises, to cling to Christ as our satisfaction, as our righteousness, as our holiness. And then Lord's Day 24 exposes the lie and the uselessness of attempting to be righteous on our own terms. And, and that's basically summarizing the problem that Jesus has with the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the religion of the Pharisees that, that is being condemned here. The religion of checkbox Christianity. The, the religion of, of trying to look good to other people and try to impress God that I'm a, I'm a good person and maybe he will find me acceptable. It's the total opposite of the gospel. It just doesn't work. You see there at the end of Lord's Day 24, if you have your psalm book open, page 538, see there in question answer 64, is it talking about grafting into Christ and bringing forth fruits. And I want to go with that picture of, of, a, of a vine or a tree for a moment. You know, what the Pharisees tried to do and what works righteousness, which is, by the way, every religion apart from Christianity is works righteousness. Every false religion says you need to work hard to become a better person. Christianity is different than every false religion. And you, you think of that picture of bringing forth fruits. Well, the, the, the legalism, the checkbox Christianity, the Phariseeism says, look, I know I'm, I'm a dead tree and I'm a sinner, I'm shriveled, and I have poisonous, bitter fruit. So what am I going to do about that? Well, why, what about a lick of paint? What about some paint to make the tree look healthy, a better color? And what about some fake wax fruit, very large and colorful, and it looks delicious? And so we just paint it up, and we stick some fake fruit, and it looks really good. But it's all fake. It's still dead. And how many, not just in false religions, but how many who confess with their lips that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, fall into that lie of works righteousness. When we are grafted into Christ, real things happen. We who were dead are made alive. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the holiness of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and the love of God flooding into our hearts and lives. And that changes us. And that transforms us. And we begin more and more to produce real fruits of real righteousness. That's why the elders visit us every year. They're not visiting us to look around and to see what things we have hanging on the wall. They want to know, are you growing in Christ? Are you being changed? Are you being transformed? Is the word of God feeding you? And is the Spirit of God producing in you more and more real fruits of thankfulness, of righteousness? And Lord's Day 25, which is the last Lord's Day we have before us this afternoon, speaks about how God produces those changes. God produces those transformations in our hearts and lives by the power of the Holy Spirit 
as he floods the gospel into our lives. God has ordained channels, massive pipelines to deliver his grace to us, to pump our lives full of his love and righteousness and holiness so that there is a massive waterfall of life and love, joy, peace, goodness, holiness, righteousness pouring into us, washing over us, filling us, overflowing from us. And the pipelines that deliver all this glory are what we call in theology the means of grace and the primary means of grace, the primary delivery mechanisms of grace from God to his church are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And we saw that this morning, didn't we? When God opened the pipelines, there was the word preached. There was the word made visible in baptism in the Lord's Supper. We heard the gospel. We saw the gospel. We tasted the gospel. And we felt the gospel washing over us and splashing over us. You can see then why these are the marks of the church. Because where these massive pipelines of God's grace are not present or are not in good working order, there is no grace, no life, no love, no joy, no peace, no goodness, no holiness, no righteousness to be had. And that's why it bothers us so much. When believers turn their backs on the means of grace, when they stay home for no lawful reason, when they go into the world or they choose to go to a church where the full gospel is not taught faithfully, really what we're doing when we despise the word of God and the administration of the sacraments, what we're doing, what we're saying is this, I, I don't want Christ I don't need Christ. I'm fine without Christ. I'm fine with less Christ. I'm fine in my sins. Maybe I'll accept a dose of Christ. Maybe I'll accept a superficial level of outward righteousness. But in the desert of this world, I choose to find my refreshment in other things besides or instead of the gospel of Christ. Now we've been singing Psalm 32 and we're going to sing it again after the sermon in just a moment. Psalm 32 speaks of the man who is blessed. He's blessed because his trespass is forgiven and his sin is covered in the sight of heaven. The Lord does not impute his guilt and iniquity, but rather he is blessed because God imputes to him the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are you, believer. And that's why God calls us to worship every week. He wants to pour his grace and his glory into us. The grace and the glory that we have in Christ. And so, he instructs us in the preaching of the word. He teaches us by proclaiming Christ to us. He shows us the way to go, and that way has a name, Christ, the way, the truth, the life. We're about to sing stanza 5 of Psalm 32. It speaks about the wicked 
who are afflicted with many woes. That's because the gospel teaches us that there is no other way. There is no other hope. Apart from Christ, there are only woes and affliction and despair and death. But for those who trust in God, for those who have faith, for those who by faith are united to Christ our Savior, we are surrounded with steadfast love. We are crowned with mercy and we rejoice. Why? Because in Christ, we are righteous. Amen.